0: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
1: I have you loud
2: and clear. <laughs> Hello.
3: Hello. 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 Welcome. <laughs> <laughs> science
2: and that is to say physics medicine Medicine. nature or space
3: Space. time the brain life the universe
2: hello this week from skincare to going under the knife we're lifting the lid on the science of looking good
0: plus in the news a dna repair kit that can fix genetic diseases and a uk project launches to clean up seven thousand tons of space junk i'm katie Haler,
2: and i'm chris smith and this is the naked scientist the Naked Scientist podcast is powered by ukfast.co.uk.
0: First this week, scientists in Cambridge have developed a system to fix a class of devastating genetic diseases called mitochondrial enzyme defects. Charlie Gard, a little boy who became a high-profile case at Great Ormond Street Hospital and who sadly died last year, had one of these conditions. They occur when structures called mitochondria, which supply our cells with energy, don't function properly. This happens because some of the mitochondria, which contain their own small piece of DNA, carry genetic changes or mutations that prevent them from working properly.
2: But now there might be a way to fix the problem. Pyam Gamage from the Medical Research Council's Laboratory of Molecular Biology has developed a gene editing system that knocks out selectively the defective mitochondria so they're replaced by healthy working ones.
4: Severe mitochondrial diseases are likely to result in, in the patient not often leaving the hospital. Serious mobility problems that likely have cognitive difficulties requiring round-the-clock care most of the time and life can really be very very difficult and in slightly less severe cases being wheelchair-bound and struggling to live an independent life. We aimed to develop a system that would enable us to target the mutated mitochondrial DNA and take that percentage down from, say, 90% mutated down to 50% mutated, then hopefully someone who did have clinical disease no longer has it anymore.
0: So you're talking about editing someone's genes?
4: We're talking about selectively removing one entire subpopulation, yeah.
0: So how on earth do you do that?
4: We took some genome engineering tools uh, which have been developed in a a different form for different purposes, zinc fingers, uh, zinc finger nucleases to be precise. And what these things do is allow you to target specific portions of DNA and cut it. If you cut the mitochondrial genome, it gets degraded. And so if you can selectively cut the versions of the mitochondrial genome that have a mutation, then you selectively remove them from the total pool. And so hopefully you change the percentage of Mutated versus healthy. We created these zinc fingers that would be specific to the mutation in this particular mouse that has a relatively mild form of mitochondrial disease. And so it has a a mutation which is very similar to a human mutation. We tested it in mouse cells to see if we could alter this ratio of mutated to unmutated. And then we put it into the mouse. So uh, injecting into the bloodstream the genetic instructions for, for these zinc fingers using a harmless virus that's been repurposed for this kind of thing. And this virus really, really likes to be taken up by heart cells, predominantly. We measured the levels of a healthy mitochondrial DNA versus uh, mutant, starting from about 70% uh, and going down to about 30, 35
0: so that's well below the level at which people would show symptoms.
4: Yes, yeah. So well below the threshold. Cells generally like to maintain a total number of mitochondrial DNA molecules. So say it's a thousand. If we've removed say twenty percent of them or thirty percent of them, what will happen is the remainder will will be replicated. And so you're basically every time you remove one molecule, you're increasing the chance that it will be replaced by a healthy one.
0: How far are you away from doing this in humans?
4: The beauty of this approach is that it's generalizable, right? So every time we want to target a new mutation, all we have to do is re-engineer the parts that bind DNA and and then it will work. That will take us a a certain period of time, a few months perhaps, to design some new ones to human mutations and then to get ourselves into a position to be performing clinical trials in humans. That could take a little bit longer. We're hoping to have uh, something on the cards within the next uh, year or so.
0: Are the mutations in people who suffer from mitochondrial disease different from each other? And if so, do you have to personalise this tool for every single person that you treat?
4: There is a pretty broad selection yeah, of uh, of mitochondrial mutations that that occur in humans and cause disease. But there are some real standout candidates that that appear much more commonly than others. For example, there's one which accounts for about 30% of all mitochondrial DNA mutations in humans. So there is definitely going to be a required level of re-engineering for different people in a personalized medicine kind of approach. But a good portion of the population should be served by a handful of these therapies.
0: You're just doing this with mitochondrial DNA. Are there any risks to the nuclear DNA?
4: We can't find any evidence of any activity of of what we've um, developed in, in the nuclear genome. We took parts of the nuclear genome that looked very, very similar to the area in the mitochondrial genome that we were targeting. And then we, we assessed the area around it to see if anything had changed. And in our experiments where we did this, we, we found absolutely no changes. In a world where you don't have an effective treatment, it's a potential silver bullet. Obviously, there's a lot of caveats that go with that and a lot of optimization and and, and careful testing and safety assurances. It potentially is a very, very big change, step change for people who suffer from these diseases.
0: Sounds like encouraging work. That was Pyam Gamage from the MRC Mitochondrial Biology Unit at Cambridge University, and that was published in the journal Nature Medicine. Now, the school term's begun here in the UK, and all over the country, kids are going back to or starting school. Now, some children have the extra challenges of learning difficulties to contend with, and might have been diagnosed with conditions including attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or ADHD, dyslexia, or an autism spectrum disorder.
2: But how helpful are these categories for the kids who are struggling at school? Well, with the help of machine learning, Cambridge scientists have identified hundreds of children with these diagnoses and they've identified clusters of learning difficulties that don't really map onto the diagnoses they've been given. Cognitive neuroscientist Duncan Assel led the study. So Duncan, first of all, what was your motivation for doing this? Why did you decide to go down this path?
5: Well, many children struggle with learning. So there's disorders like ADHD, which you've mentioned. So prevalence rates for those kinds of things um, vary from, say, three to eight percent. But actually, the proportion of children who struggle to learn is much higher than that. Um, In government statistics, around 30 percent of kids don't meet their age expected levels by the end of primary school. And we're really interested in what are the underlying causes or the underlying roots to being a struggling learner. And the way that you would normally study that would be to choose a group of kids that you're interested in, say kids with ADHD, and you would compare them to all the kids who don't. But we began to think that there were some real problems with relying solely on that approach. And the first one is that it assumes that all the children who have the same diagnostic label are all the same as each other. And, and you're, not, and you're it,
2: genuinely comparing apples with apples. Yeah, and we're, we're not so sure that's be. true. Yeah. yeah. So who did you recruit then?
5: Well, we um, set up a centre, which we called the Centre for Attention, Learning and Memory. And to that centre, professionals in education and in clinical services could refer children to us that they thought were struggling. They didn't have to have a diagnosis, but they could. Or they could have multiple diagnoses. They just had to be struggling in the areas of attention, learning or memory. So intentionally generic.
2: And how did you study them?
5: So each family would visit us and the team of research assistants and PhD students would spend several hours doing different kinds of cognitive assessment with the children. Um, We would have behaviour
2: ratings for the parents to fill out and most of the children would go through the MRI scanner. So you've got what their performance is like, what their performance is like as in their track record, what the performance is like in your tests and a brain scan to go with and what you then marry all that information or at least you're asking a computer to marry all this information together and look for for common ground or differences between them.
5: Essentially, yes. So we, we took many of the cognitive assessments and we fed them into a machine learning algorithm. So machine learning sounds kind of fancy, but actually we use it all the time in our everyday lives. So every time you type something into a search engine, Behind the scenes, there's an algorithm which is learning about that information that you're feeding it. And, you know, you might notice that things appear in your adverts that correspond to what you've searched for. So our machine learning algorithm was learning about the cognitive data that we fed in from these kids.
2: Um, And what it learned was that there were different profiles of children, children with different profiles of cognitive difficulty. What does that mean in practical terms? When you say there are different profiles, are you saying, say, I had a diagnosis of ADHD I've got that label, but actually my ADHD may be quite different from the label of ADHD you might receive, for example.
5: Yeah, exactly, because one thing we could then do is check about what the machine learning algorithm has learned and see whether it's really learned the categories, the Mm. the diagnoses the kids came with. And the data showed very clearly that's not what the machine learning was learning. Children who had a diagnosis of ADHD could have very different profiles from each other. They could have very different uh, cognitive strengths and difficulties. And that's a real challenge in trying to think about how we support those kids.
2: Mm. Does this mean then our categorization's just wrong? We're putting people into narrow bins of problems. And in fact, the, it's much more subtle than that. And we need much sort of narrower but wider categorisation. I think it means that the diagnoses,
5: we're not thinking about them in the right way. So they're not kind of like medical diagnoses. They're, they're much less discrete and clean than that. And we don't really understand what the underlying causes are. And so we still think that a diagnosis is a real landmark moment for children and families when they get some professional recognition Mm. for the challenges they've been facing. The question is, how do practitioners then best support those kids? And how do we equip those practitioners to do that? And the answer is
2: simply knowing the diagnostic label itself isn't enough information to go on. Indeed, at the end of the day, we're dealing with an individual here who's got a problem that they want help solving, isn't it? So, does your tool give us a better insight into, okay, we can identify where this person's weaknesses are, so we can then go to the classroom and say, if you augment the training in this direction or give this person extra aids, perhaps more stimulation, more practice in this area, this will help to develop this area that they are clearly deficient in? Well, we believe so. So, for example, in the data, A large
5: portion of the children have problems in short-term or working memory. Those children could have a diagnosis of ADHD, they could have a diagnosis of ASD, or they could have no diagnosis at all. Autism Spectrum Disorder. Autism Spectrum Disorder. Or they could have no diagnosis at all. But we know that if you try and reduce working memory demands in the classroom, then kids with poor working memory will do better. So we already know that there are some interventions out there that are effective for these kinds of cognitive difficulties. Um, It's just that they seem to cut across the traditional diagnostic boundaries that we've kind of hitherto believed in.
2: A lot of people are not going to have the recourse to a machine learning algorithm, an MRI scanner in your brain, Duncan, with with all due respect, in order to do this, are they? I mean, is this deployable on a grand scale? Within schools, there are specialists called specialists educational needs coordinators and there'll be one of those
5: in every primary school and they receive additional training in how to support children and it would be useful for them to be trained in understanding what are the different areas of cognition that children can struggle in and how do we assess those?
2: I guess we'll have to wait and see is what you're saying isn't it Duncan thank you very much that's Duncan Assel and his paper has just been published in the journal Developmental Science.
6: So what we were trying to do with this paper is to demonstrate the ability to type using brain signals, anywhere between approximately four and approximately eight words per minute, a factor of between two and four faster than what's been demonstrated
2: before. Each month, the eLife podcast talks to some of the world's best scientists. Join me, Chris Smith, as I hear about breathtaking discoveries hot off the press. Find the eLife podcast on iTunes or listen and download for free from nakedscientist.com eLife. Still to come, the tech that will tell you when you've had enough sun exposure for one day and can breast implants cause cancer.
0: But first, imagine saving up for years to buy a new car, but to get it home, you first have to drive it through a pile of old metal, meaning you end up taking the sides off of it in the process. It sounds far-fetched, but it's effectively what's happening to the new satellites we're sending up into space. Because the planet is surrounded by a sea of orbiting junk left behind from our previous forays aloft. And this rubbish is threatening to jeopardise technology worth millions.
2: Now, scientists across Europe are taking this particular bull by the horns with an imaginatively named project called Remove Debris. Izzy Clark spoke with Surrey Space Centre director and leader of the project, Guillermo Alietti.
7: Currently there are uh, more than 7,000 tonnes of stuff up there in space and mostly are old satellites or the final stage of rockets, uh, things that have been put in orbit maybe you know decades ago and they are still there uh, spinning around. Some of them have uh, broken into bits. It is a problem because this stuff in orbit travels really fast. And so even a small fragment hitting a new satellite could destroy this new satellite.
3: Imagine spending all that time researching a brand new satellite only to launch it into orbit and then have it destroyed by a piece of space junk. Guillermo and his team is planning to change all that.
7: Well, what we have done with our partner is to put together a consortium to demonstrate the technologies that can be uh, used to remove some of this debris, and the project has been sponsored by the European Commission. The kind of technologies that we are going to demonstrate are uh, relatively simple technologies, if you want. One is a net, so the idea is to capture your piece of debris with a net, and this net that envelops the object, and then you can drag it down Another technology that we are going to demonstrate in a few months is a harpoon. So also here is a similar thing. So with the harpoon, you try to capture your object and then you will pull it down until it burns into the atmosphere.
3: OK, so you've just done this first test, so talk me through it. How did it work?
7: OK, everything went very well. So from the main satellite, which is uh, the size of an old television set, we have released our artificial target. is maybe the size of a loaf of bread, to, to give people an idea. Then this has inflated the structure uh, to be much bigger, so it is more representative of a real piece of debris. Then from the main satellite we have launched the net that has captured our little debris with its inflatable structure and has completely enveloped our debris and so now is going to the orbit with it and burn into the atmosphere.
3: How is all of this controlled? How would your device know where to capture this piece of debris?
7: Ah, Well, in our case, we have released our own uh, piece of artificial debris so we knew where it was and therefore it was relatively easy to, to recapture it. In a real scenario, the first thing that the satellite will have to do is to get closer to the potential target. So you would have to have a more sophisticated control of the satellite in order to get closer to your target. Therefore, you can capture it.
3: Another test that the removed Debris team have scheduled is to use a camera to monitor the speed and shape of debris in order to track how a potential target moves. After that, it's over to trying a harpoon rather than a net to capture this junk. But how does it all then get destroyed?
7: The idea is that we are going to uh, lower the orbit so this junk can burn into the upper atmosphere. And normally our satellites are designed in a way that they can burn completely in the higher atmosphere. However, you would try to do these manoeuvres maybe over the ocean. So even in the unlucky case that the little part of your satellite maybe doesn't burn completely, the potential fragment then drops into the ocean rather than in an area where maybe there is a higher density of habitants.
3: Rather than trying to scoop up every bit of space junk, this debris harvesting device will aim to collect the biggest pieces of junk in space to save them from breaking up into smaller fragments and adding to the overall pile of debris in orbit. Once it has been scooped up by the net or harpoon, the removed debris satellite will use a giant sail to steer towards our atmosphere until the satellite and the junk in tow is all burnt up. So what's next for the team?
7: Now that we have shown that the technology is viable, uh, we hope to be able to convince all the stakeholders to actually finance such a mission. What we imagine is just to do a few missions every year where people would agree beforehand what is the particular piece of debris that we are targeting. So you can go up, capture this piece of debris, and then deorbit it. This is what the kind of scenario that we have in mind.
2: Well, it sounds to me like they have got a monumentally big job on their hands. That was Guillermo Alietti from the Surrey Space Centre. And you can watch a video of Project Remove Debris in action. On their website if you're so inclined
0: now basking in the warm sun is a luxury that many of us love and it's also good for you up to a point because the ultraviolet rays in sunlight produce the bone boosting hormone vitamin d in your skin but too much UV causes sunburn, skin ageing and wrinkles and it's a major risk factor for skin cancer, rates of which have more than doubled in recent decades. Now scientists from Australia have come to the rescue with a wearable sensor that you can pop on your wrist. It goes blue when you're past the safe daily sun limit for your skin type. Inventor Vipul Bansal told Tamsin Bell how it works.
1: UV is invisible and UV is not hot, so you can't feel UV. And the heat that we feel in the sun is because of infrared rays, it's not because of UV. We are trying to make UV sensors in the form of wearable sensors which change colour when you go in the sun. This ink can interact with the UV light and then become blue.
3: So once our sensor becomes blue, we know that we have to go inside?
1: Yes, and this ink can give a warning signal. Now it's time for you to go back in.
3: And how does this work? What chemicals are involved?
1: So there are two main chemicals in this ink. We call it an invisible ink because it's initially colorless. There's a chemical called polyoxymethylate. It's a big molecule, a lot of phosphorus, oxygen. The second component in the ink is lactic acid, a common chemical which is present in yogurt. So when we mix these two components together and we shine in this ink with the UV light, then lactic acid molecules can give electrons to the other molecule. When this happens, polyoxymethylate becomes blue in color, and that's what we see.
3: What about different skin types or UV tolerance? How does this take that into account?
1: We have six different types of skin. Could be a very fair skin to a very dark skin. Now, the UV requirements and the tolerance of these skin types are very, very different. A very fair skin cannot tolerate a huge amount of UV. If we look at a dark skin, it can tolerate a reasonably large amount of UV which means that we need to have personalised sensors for different skin colours. So a sensor that would be for a very fair skin, it should develop colour very, very fast. On the other hand, the colour should develop slowly in case of a darker skin, so a person can stay in the UV for a longer period of time.
3: I'm a bit of a sun worshipper. Is this sensor going to tell me that I have to stop sitting in the sun really quickly?
1: A lot of us love sun and we cannot really avoid exposure to sun we are recommended to use sunscreen with a high SPF number to reduce the amount of UV that is reaching to your skin. When you're applying the sunscreen on your skin, you can also apply it on the sensor. It will also reduce the amount of UV that reaches your sensor and sensor will develop uh, slowly.
3: So I suppose the same would apply if someone sat in the shade.
1: Yes, that is true. We call it a cumulative dose. So when they are in the sun, then only the sensor will work. And depending on the intensity of the sun, the sensor will, will either work faster or slower, and then it won't go back once you go back into the shade. So in that way, the sensor lasts for one day. We see a huge prospect of these sensors because the sensor can allow people to be exposed to the maximum dose possible without causing the harm. Are you planning to make these and sell them in shops? And how much would it cost? We have a very ambitious target to bring it to the market by early 2020. The retail cost would be somewhere around one dollar.
0: Well, they say you can't put a price on your health. That was Vipul Bantal, and he's based at the Royal Melbourne Institute of Technology, and you can read his paper on that sensor in the journal Nature Communications.
2: Now, 10 years ago this month, and who could believe it was 10 years ago, the Large Hadron Collider switched on for the first time, and it began its quest to revolutionise our understanding of our universe. But how successful has it been? Adam Murphy. Under the
5: ground near the Swiss-French border, lies the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, a 27 km long ring, one of the largest engineering projects ever undertaken. It was built to help us unlock some of the fundamental secrets of the universe. But how does it do that? Tara Shears is a professor of particle physics at the University of Liverpool,
8: Somebody's described it as working out how a Swiss watch works by bashing two really expensive ones together and trying to reconstruct what's in there from all the bits that fall out. It takes two beams of protons which are hydrogen nuclei and it circulates them in opposite directions around this ring and it accelerates them until they've got loads of energy and and until they're travelling just a few metres per second less than the speed of light. And then those beams are steered to smash together at four points around this ring where we build our experiments. And it's what goes on when those beams crash together which is the key to our whole investigation because when those proton beams smash together, what's actually going on is for a tiny, tiny instance of time in a tiny area of space, we have so much energy that we can dissemble matter to its fundamental constituents. And we can make new fundamental constituents from that energy. And our experiments act as gigantic 3D cameras and take snapshots of the traces these particles leave behind when they zip out from the collision point and deposit their energy through all our detector material.
5: Probably the most famous result of the LHC is the discovery of the Higgs boson, for which François Englert and Peter Higgs were awarded the Nobel Prize in 2013.
8: So the Higgs boson is an absolutely integral part of the universe. Well, actually, the integral part of the universe is something called the Higgs field. It's a type of energy field which is present throughout the universe. And the reason that this is such a big deal for us is that we think it's this field and the interactions that fundamental particles have with this field as they move around the universe that gives fundamental particles their mass, which might not sound like a particularly big thing, but it's absolutely necessary for us to be able to make sense of the way particles behave, of the way the forces that govern particle behaviour have their particular strengths, And this field and this particle, the Higgs boson, that's associated with the field is an absolutely integral part of our theoretical understanding of what's going on. The LHC was designed so that if the Higgs boson existed, then we should be able to see it. And indeed, back in 2012, we did see the first observation of this particle. And then ever since, we've been gathering more data. What has the
5: discovery of the Higgs meant for science?
8: What the discovery of the Higgs boson did for us is that it, it, it filled in the, the missing parts in our current understanding of matter. It's like having a jigsaw and getting those last pieces and sticking it in and then all the pieces lock together and you've got a coherent picture that you, you know, you can see it in front of you. It works. It's brilliant. You, you can't overstate what an important step forward that was. And the LHC's work is far from finished as well as being constructed to try and find the Higgs boson, the LHC is really a discovery machine. Although we've been going 10 years, we've only taken about 5% of our ultimate data set. The LHC is a real long-term machine. We're thinking that it will carry on until 2035, maybe even a little bit longer. So there's an awful lot more data to come. So if if you think what we've already done with the 5% of data that we've got with the discovery of the Higgs and all these other investigations that have told us more about the limitations of our theory and the limitations of our alternative hypotheses, I can't tell you what's going to come out of the next 95%. And this is the thrilling thing about doing research. The data that we're collecting... Tells us something new, and I'd be foolish to try and guess what's out there.
6: And what was it
5: like to be a particle physicist that first day, ten years ago?
8: Oh, it 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 was just amazing to see the evidence for this first beam go round. It was quite awe-inspiring, actually, when you think of all the engineering, all the design, all the work that had gone into this machine, and yet it worked when they switched it on. I I I still I still find that incredible. It's a massive endeavor. There aren't many massive endeavours on this scale. For us, it's almost akin to the moon landings and the space race in terms of going out there and finding out what there is. It's another one of these endeavours of mankind that make you think mankind at heart is brilliant if it can do this sort of thing.
2: Tara Shears from the University of Liverpool there, speaking with Adam Murphy about the giant leaps that the LHC has helped us to make in the 10 years That it's now been operating. In the meantime, if you'd like to catch up with any of the stories we covered this week, the transcripts and the references to the published papers behind them are all on our website. You can find that at nakedscientists.com. The
9: Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire, cost effective voice, internet, and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk.
2: Now, a bit of a personal question here, Katie, do forgive me. Now, when did you last have a look in the mirror?
0: I think probably just before the start of the show. I'll try not to take that too personally.
2: Perfect face for radio and all that. (laughs) Now look, don't worry. The reason for actually asking that, um, and you haven't got the remains of your lunch down your front, the reason I'm asking you is because most of us set enormous, store, of course, by physical appearance, both of ourselves and other people. The job you do, the person you end up marrying, the perception others form of you it's all down to how we present ourselves. And consequently, the fashion and cosmetics industry is estimated to be worth over half a trillion dollars every single year. So... In this half an hour, we're going to reflect on the science of skincare, the chemistry of cosmetics and also the safety of surgery.
0: But first, to find out why the way we look is so important to us, I went to Anglia Ruskin University to see social psychologist and body image expert, Viren Swamy.
10: There are a number of different theoretical explanations. The kind of the most dominant one is probably an evolutionary psychological one, that we try and look good because we want to attract mates. And the way we demonstrate our health and fitness is primarily through our attractiveness. The idea is that attractiveness is highly linked with health and fertility and that people who look attractive are more fertile and healthier. So we try and demonstrate our effectiveness or our propensity to mate with with other good looking people by demonstrating our own attractiveness there is also a cultural explanation uh, which is simply that we are generally biased to perceive attractive people as having better personal qualities being more sociable being happier being better at work and all kinds of other personal qualities and if you have that bias if you incorporate internalize that bias then you want to look good because you think you will accrue the rewards of looking good There is also a neuroscientific explanation, which is that our brains process attractive people as more rewarding. Uh, There is a part of the brain called the nucleus accumbens, which shows heightened activity anytime we see attractive people. And the suggestion from neuroscience is that our brains like it when we see attractive people. So we try and demonstrate our own attractiveness.
0: Now, I've made a bit of an assumption that everyone pays attention to how they look. Is that true?
10: There is evidence to suggest that most people pay attention to how they look, but also that they conform to different standards of grooming. So most people have an idea of what's expected of them societally in terms of what they should look like, whether it's in occupational settings or in romantic settings or in daily life. They also have an expectation of what they should look like in terms of their grooming. There are also individual differences. So for example, there are studies suggesting that people who are higher in what we call appearance investment tend to spend more time focused on their appearance and also tend to believe that their own appearance has a huge impact on life outcomes like whether they get a job or whether they're likely to find a dating partner and so on. People who are low in investment appearance tend to think that appearance isn't really particularly important and they consequently spend very little time on their own appearance. There are also other kind of factors that might relate to how important you think appearance is and also your use of cosmetics for example. There is some evidence to suggest that people who are for example higher in what we call oppressive beliefs, so people who are more sexist who are more hostile towards women are more likely believe that women in general but also their partners should use cosmetics
0: so in my handbag which is sitting in the corner of your office i've got some mascara some foundation some lipstick i'm probably not alone why do so many of us paint it on our faces
10: i think there are a number of reasons if you look at it from a cultural point of view particularly for women i think there, there is pressure to conform to stereotypes of what femininity is At the individual level, the reasons might be very different to why someone might choose to use cosmetics compared to the political or the social levels. There's a good deal of data to suggest that when women wear makeup, they feel better about themselves. When women wear cosmetics, they feel more confident, they feel more self-competent, and they also perceive themselves experiencing better rewards as a result.
0: And have the same studies been done on men or people of other genders?
10: Not at the moment. So we, do, we know very little about uh, men who use cosmetics and particularly men who use makeup. There is evidence to suggest that the use of makeup among men is increasing, uh, but we don't know necessarily about the outcomes. One of the difficulties with men and cosmetics is that historically, at least, the use of makeup in men was considered transgressive in terms of their masculinity. More recently, there is evidence to suggest that the use of makeup has been incorporated into some forms of masculinity.
0: What about other people's opinions of us then? Can, for instance, wearing makeup change the way someone else might behave towards me?
10: Again, it's really difficult to know whether they're responding to you because of the makeup or because they perceive you as being more attractive. I think there are two separate things here. I think one is the kind of the general response from other people. It's quite possible that they're responding for women particularly to you using makeup because they perceive you as being more feminine as opposed to when you don't use makeup and you're perceived as being less feminine. So there are lots of interactions between the perceptions of people based on whether or not they're using makeup. There are also studies suggesting when women wear makeup, they're perceived as being more competent, particularly for high power jobs. uh, Because again, it's It's consistent with the perception of what's required for those jobs. So it's really difficult to know whether the response at the level of the general population is to you because you're wearing makeup or because you're conforming to societal norms about what you you should and shouldn't do.
0: So if I go to a job interview and I put on some makeup, is that really going to increase my chances of getting the job?
10: It turns out it is possible and it's certainly likely that you increase the likelihood of you having a successful outcome from that job interview. But I suspect this is partly a function of the people who are interviewing. Historically, at least, job interviews tend to be dominated by men and they have certain expectancies about what they would like and don't like their women to do. And, and the assumption here would be that women who wear makeup are kind of conforming to a gender role uh, and men feel more comfortable when women conform to that gender role. Women on interview panels might be doing the same thing. So they might be assuming that when other women coming for a job are conforming, they feel better and safer around those women.
0: And there's evidence to to back up that notion. Mm -hmm.
10: Yes. The other really interesting thing is how a partner might respond to you. And this is particularly true of men's responses to their female partners in heterosexual relationships. There is some evidence to suggest that when heterosexuals are in committed relationships, men generally don't like their partners to wear makeup. And this might be because they perceive it as a means of attracting other partners and so they experience greater feelings of jealousy. One of the nice things about social psychology is that we also know that the importance of first impressions drops off very quickly. So the kind of importance of physical appearance matters most in the absence of any kind of social interaction. So when you, when you see someone for the very first time, you make a judgment about that person based on their physical appearance alone. And that makes sense because you've got no information about that individual But once social interaction begins, and this is also true of of interviews and and job interviews and so on, but also romantic relationships, for example, once you begin to have social interactions, you begin to piece together a much fuller picture of the individual and you're kind of gleaning much more satisfying and richer data. And you begin to use things like reciprocal information, whether you're exchanging information with the other person, whether you're you're exchanging intimacy, whether you're exchanging useful information with the other person in a a job uh, outcome. Things like similarity also then begin to matter as well. So kind of the key point is that although appearance really is important, particularly in, in kind of occupational settings, the importance is is often overestimated.
0: So perhaps we don't need to worry too much about any bad first impressions. That was Viran Swami there from Anglia Ruskin University.
2: Very thought-provoking, all of that. Now, more extreme than wearing makeup is resorting to surgery to alter your appearance. And one currently very popular body modification is breast augmentation. For the uninitiated, this involves inserting a bread roll shaped implant filled with either a silicon gel or a saline solution underneath the breast tissue and this makes the breasts look larger. People say it gives them more confidence and also more satisfaction with their body. But the procedure has since been linked with an increased risk of developing a cancer of white blood cells, which is called anaplastic large cell lymphoma, or ALCL. Cambridge University's Suzanne Turner has been studying it. First of all, Suzanne, can we put some numbers on this? How many breast surgeries to do breast augmentation and place implants are being conducted worldwide every year?
11: About 6 to 10 million per year.
2: Oh, huge numbers.
11: Huge numbers, yeah.
2: Okay. And this condition, how did it first come to light?
11: So the first case was reported back in 1997 now and this was a case that was in the literature but not much attention was paid to it to begin with.
2: Tell us about the disease then. When someone has ALCL, what have they got? How would they know they had it?
11: So it's generally a sudden swelling, normally in just one breast, uh, which can come on from anything from one year to over 10 years past surgery. Uh, that swelling tends to uh, stay around. It can also come as a lump, either in the capsule that forms around the breast implant. So this is a, an area of fibrous tissue that forms in response to the breast implant. And lumps and bumps around that area can also be a sign of ALCL.
2: So painful or painless?
11: Both. Women have reported all sorts of ranging symptoms associated with
2: this. Interesting. So the disease actually happens locally to the implants happening, but what, one side, both sides? Generally one side. Hmm. So what do we think the mechanism is then that encourages this particular tumour to form?
11: So there are a number of theories uh, out there. So the first one is that it's infection driving this. So during the surgery perhaps some infection gets involved uh, and this lingering infection leads to the white blood cells proliferating out of control and becoming this lymphoproliferation, this cancer. Another theory is, is suggesting that some women are maybe allergic to these breast implants and this allergic response which goes on for a long period of time again drives these cells into proliferation. An alternative theory is that for some women, uh, there may be an autoimmune condition that predisposes them. So it may be the case that they already have an autoimmunity and the presence of the implants upsets the balance of white blood cells within their body. And of course, the theory we can't really discount is the breast implants themselves. And are there toxins related to those breast implants, for example, which may also be driving uh, this form of disease? And of course, we know for many cancers, uh, there could in some cases be driving toxic stimuli. Breast implants are made of a whole array of different chemicals that we don't really know too much about. Uh, How these are manufactured is a closely guarded secret by the companies that make them. And so I think all four theories aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. I think that there may be a multitude of mechanisms towards this particular cancer and that for some women uh, they may be at a higher risk than others due to predisposing conditions. What we do know is it's mostly associated with women who have a form of implant that has a textured surface. So this is a very specific type of implant um, that's been introduced as a way to deal with something called capsular contracture and this is where uh, the fibrous capsule that forms around the breast implant can pull the skin in forming sort of dimpling effect. So these textured implants have certainly been more commonly associated with this form of cancer.
2: thing is though we put lots of other implants into the body. People have hip replacements, other joint replacements and other things put into various places. Do they carry the same risk? Because many of the mechanisms you've outlined do not strike me as being unique to what we do with breast implantation and breast augmentation surgery.
11: Absolutely. You're right there. So you would expect that if it's bacterially driven and it's due to the uh, surgical procedure in itself, that you would see these lymphomas occurring in people with all sorts of other implants. And actually you don't. Uh, There are some rare cancers that have been associated with metallic implants, but for the most part, we only see breast implant associated ALCL with breast implants. So I think that gives us some clues as to what's really driving this.
2: What's your overall risk then? Because there may well be people listening to this if they're one of that You know, very large cohort, millions of cases a year having breast augmentation. What's your risk of having this condition?
11: So it is rare, but the risk in the UK is currently placed at one in 28,000 women with breast implants. And that's data based on the number of implants that are sold. Although, of course, we don't know how many of those implants actually make it into women. Although if you read through the literature, the rates of this disease developing range from one in 3,000 women with a textured implant to one in 30,000 women. So there's a whole array of different rates depending on where you live and, and which literature you read.
2: So if you're in one of those unlucky groups who is diagnosed with this, Suzanne, what can you do about it?
11: So the treatment is fairly straightforward for the ladies that are diagnosed very early on in the disease. So the treatment is literally removal of the breast implant and the capsule that surrounds the implant. And for the majority of these women, that's enough to put the disease into remission. However, having said that, obviously it is a surgical procedure and and it's not something that anybody would enter into lightly. Uh, And at the same time, there are the implications of whether or not to have a replacement implant and whether or not that is safe. And unfortunately, we still don't really know. Some women are having uh, smooth implants put in in place of the textured implants. But I don't think that the evidence is fully out there yet that the smooth implants are any safer necessarily. Unfortunately for some women, these cancers do develop and they do progress into something more. And for some rare women, uh, this can be the first sign of the cancer. So I'm aware of ladies who have had masses growing into their rib cages uh, with a very aggressive disease that needs chemotherapy. So it can be a very aggressive, nasty disease. And there have been about 16 deaths reported worldwide. So it's not something that should be looked upon too lightly.
2: Do you think, on the balance of it, that actually the ends justify the means? Do you think we should still be allowing people to have breast implants, given that they are effectively taking a risk? It's not just a one in a million chance. These numbers are quite high, the risk that you've been saying of this happening.
11: It's very much a personal choice. And I think at the heart of it all is that women should be able to make an informed decision. And up until a few years ago, that was not the case. Women were not being told that this was a risk so now we do know that it is a risk it's very important that plastic surgeons convey this risk to ladies before they make the decision as to whether or not to have implants
2: suzanne thank you very much that's suzanne turner from the university of cambridge still to come do anti-wrinkle creams really work
0: but first, let's just slap on a bit of lippy. We heard earlier why many people wear makeup, but what's actually in these creams and powders? John Emsley is a chemist and author of the book Chemistry at Home, exploring the ingredients in everyday products. Now, John, I've got my little makeup bag here in front of me. Um, can you tell us about a few of these products? I have just put on some rather nice deep purple lipstick. What actually is it?
9: Well, what you're putting on is something like a wax or an oil mixed together uh, with a colour or a dye with it. There are other components. There are about 20 components in some lipsticks. But basically, you're doing what ancient Egyptians did, what ancient Romans did. You want to highlight your lips. Uh, In those first things, they were using quite dangerous materials. They are using things like cinnabar which is deep red, but of course that's a mercury compound. Today we use safe dyes and, you know, there's no risk of being affected by anything that you put on your lips.
0: Well, I'm very glad to hear it because I've just put some on. Now, I've just taken a sip of my cup of tea that I've got here in the studio and unfortunately I now have purple on the cup. Um, Oh dear. Is this supposed to happen?
9: Well, modern lipsticks were invented about 100 years ago in America and there were lots of faults with them to begin with. They were greasy... In cold weather, they snapped, broke off. In hot weather, they melted. They tended to pick up germs, so they very quickly became infected. Well, of course, today, all those problems have been solved. You've got a better range of colours. You can make it glossy. You can make it even sparkle. And, of course, today, we'd like to think of the colours that you're using are impermeable. In other words, they won't pass from your lips to whatever you touch. Um... I'm afraid to say, if I'd go around and look for something slightly better if I were <laughs>
0: <laughs> So, secondly, mascara. Uh, it's a common thing to find in the makeup bag. This is put on my eyelashes. What is
9: it? Well, again, mascara's been around since ancient times. And the very first mascaras were using something called coal. Now, coal. Again, it's, there are minerals. There was an antimony mineral and there was a lead mineral that people used in those days. But you're going back now to ancient Egyptian times again. Today, of course, they're much safer. What you've got in a mascara is a wax base, and some of them actually use beeswax or canuba wax and things like that. They tend to mix that with an oil so it's much more flexible than just the simple wax. You also want something that keeps it permanently soft, like glycerine, glycerol. You also want... Other components there, you want obviously a dark component. Today, you tend to use carbon black or there are very black iron oxides. You don't want, of course, there to be infection in your mascara because you don't want your eyes to become infected. And of course, you need some protection against germs and things like that. So it's, a very, again, a very complex mix. But today, I think they're about as safe as it's possible to be.
0: Another thing I found in my makeup bag is a foundation liquid. What is foundation
9: Well, the idea of foundation is to protect the skin of the face and to mask blemishes. And so lots of things can be included in foundation. Generally, they're different forms of iron oxide, so you can get the skin tone that you're looking for. Very often you want to put a silicone layer on your skin because that protects it. It prevents water being absorbed from the skin, so the skin remains slightly plumper. And, of course, it protects the skin against outside influences. So it's a protective layer and it's a disguise. That's basically what a foundation (laughs) is. (laughs) So,
0: John, now we're in 2018 and a lot of people wear foundation, but I'm guessing people have done this throughout history. So when did, as far as we know, when did people first start wearing foundation and how has it changed over time?
9: Again, we can trace that back to ancient times, mainly upper class women who used it. They didn't want their skin to appear rugged. If you were an ordinary person, you worked outside a lot, then of course you'd be exposed to UV. Your skin would begin to look aged. You didn't want to show you were such a person, so you wanted a lighter skin. And very often, what they were applying to their skin was very light pigments. Sometimes they even used arsenic trioxide, which was known as white arsenic in those days. And I believe Queen Elizabeth I was very partial to having her skin looking very white. Um, as proof that she was the upper-class woman of the time. Arsenic on the surface of skin is not a threat. I mean, it does, of course, if it gets into your body, but even on the tiny amounts that you might have absorbed, it wouldn't do anything dangerous. And then, of course, sometimes, of course, if you took a little arsenic into your body, then you get a a, a red blush forming on your cheeks. And again, that was something that uh, women... Took arsenic for it one time.
0: Oh dear. Okay. Well, I'm certainly not going to be doing that uh, now. <laughs> a slightly different one, John, but what about deodorant, antiperspirant? It's a cosmetic of sorts if we think about it trying to make us smell nice. What actually are these kind of sprays or roll ons?
9: It can prevent the bacteria that are producing these odours if you block the pores of your skin in the armpits, which, of course, is where a lot of the sweat is produced. And so you spray on something that will block them. Once of a day it was aluminium salt, but that fell out of favour. Now it can often be a zirconium salt. You block those pores, you won't produce as much sweat, and so you can go off for the evening not smelling like a, a male, if you know what I mean. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, dear.
0: Okay. blocking these pores, is it a good idea? Is it safe?
9: I mean, it wouldn't be safe if you tried to do it all over your body. I mean, there are people who've painted their body and died very quickly because you blocked every pore. But it's just these very profuse sweating glands under your arms that then produce these bacteria. And then, of course, they give off very often sulphur-based smells, which are quite strong, and that awful sweaty odour. If you're going out for the evening, you're going to mix with people. You don't want people coming up to you and then backing away, thinking, oh, God, what a pong. (laughs) Uh, You want to give off a a lovely come-hither smell, don't you? Of course, for women, it's just as important to do this as well. And the other thing about deodorants, of course, is you can try and kill the bacteria that are causing it. But again, some of the, like triclosan, some of the very powerful antibacterial agents are now frowned upon. And so perhaps it's best just to keep, you know, shower every day and remain as fresh as you can.
0: Thanks very much, John. We're going to have to leave it there. John Emsley.
2: Well, that's the chemistry of what we're slapping on our skin. But what about the skin itself? And are these various potions and notions that bedeck our bathroom shelves actually any good And do they do us any good? Well, dermatologist Jane Sterling's from Addenbrookes Hospital and she can hopefully answer these questions for us. But first of all, Jane, in order to understand the effect on skin, we have to understand what skin is. So what is skin?
12: Well, skin, of course, is the covering to all our bodies uh, with a slightly modified version over the front of the eye and the mouth. The two important layers of the skin, there's the epidermis, a wonderful, self-renewing, very thin surface that's continually being made... From below and continually lost from the surface, and below that is the dermis, that's the stretchy um, but sort of padding layer just beneath, and then of course we go down to fat and muscle. So our skin is a self-renewing surface, it protects us from the outside and it keeps the inside inside.
2: One statistic I read was we lose something like forty 000 or fifty thousand skin cells every second.
12: Does that sound about right? We certainly lose a lot. And no, most people don't realise that household dust is mainly Us. skin that's been shed. <laughs> As we're yes. walking around through our homes, right. you're,
2: you're breathing yourself and your housemates in. Isn't, isn't that true? That is true. So when, when the skin is, is young and youthful, like yours and mine... Um, why is it different from someone who's got all craggy and needs loads of lipstick, like Katie? No, I'm just kidding, Katie. you're not all, you're not all wrinkly and, and leathery, but okay. you know, someone who's got a bit ancient. Why, so why is as, that So, as different? we all
12: get more ancient, we will all get more wrinkly, and our skin will be soft and less, um, less vibrant looking. It's just it's just what happens. So we lose some thickness to our skin as we get older. Um, we get drier because our grease glands stop working quite so well. So so we look look a bit duller and duller and definitely sad.
2: Um, if you pinch the back of your hand, for example, I remember doing this on my daughter earlier. You just sort of raise the skin up like a tent. Yep. It immediately pings, pings back in her, but in me, hmm, it takes the, the return up, time. The, the relaxed yes. time is a few seconds. That's right. <laughs> So why is there that's that your derm,
12: That's your dermis that isn't. Uh, it hasn't got as much collagen and elastin in as it did when you were younger. And why is that? That's a natural ageing process but that's magnified by the effects of the sun. So uh, that's one of the major effects of having a lot of sun exposure is we, we get collagen damage uh, and as we get older both collagen and elastin aren't produced as much.
2: So when I go to a supermarket or a chemist or something and buy an anti-ageing cream or something to make me look a bit younger, how do those things work
12: if they work. That's, yeah, I mean, they're defying, uh, that, I suppose they're defying the eye potentially, yes, aren't they? But yes. but is,
2: is it defying the eye or is it actually doing something physically to the well, skin they'll or do, both?
12: Well, they'll do uh, certain things like every cream, they'll keep moisture in the skin. So they'll stop your skin looking dried up and it'll stop it drying up quite so much as the day goes on. They might have a little bit of a, a shine to them, of course, if they contain greasy things. So that dull look that can make you look older, you can lose that. But the uh, creams that are put forward as anti-aging creams, um, there's a bit of a debate as to how well they work because they really need to get down into the dermis to do something to that collagen and elastin. And they don't do that as well as as well on actual skin as they do in cell culture, for instance. So uh, the only the only constituent of anti aging creams that really has good evidence behind it are the retinoids, retinol. They're vitamin A like chemicals, aren't they? That's right. Uh, similar to vitamin A, um, but put on the surface, they do seem to go deep enough to produce. A measurable effect on wrinkles.
2: And what is that effect? Are they encouraging the skin to what, make more elastic tissue, make uh, more to, collagen? To make
12: more collagen, yes. And
2: that irons out the wrinkles a bit?
12: Yes, but of course it'll really only work when you're using it and the tests that are used to measure wrinkles are pretty detailed. So whether you would notice a huge difference, probably not. You might notice a little difference to the end of a treatment period with it.
2: And When one does slap on lots of makeup day after day after day, relentlessly, is there evidence that that's bad for you? Does that age, harm or damage the skin or does it not make any difference?
12: Well, as long as you don't react to the makeup you're putting on, you don't develop an allergy to it, which is always possible. And as long as it's not a drying, um, dehydrating effect on the skin, then there should be no long-term problems. For makeup, one other thing that you can sometimes do, if it's a really heavy sort of concealer makeup, it can bring up acne spots, but otherwise should be no long-term damage.
2: That's a relief. Jane, thank you very much. That's Jane Sterling. She's a dermatologist at Adam Brooks Hospital.
0: And thank you very much to our other guests this week, Viran Swamy, John Emsley and Suzanne Turner. And interestingly, we put out a recent Twitter poll asking you listeners if you do or would use anti-ageing products and the majority of you said yes.
2: Now, to finish the programme this week, Sam Brown wants to whet your appetite with the answer to this question from Daniel. If I stand in the shallow end of a swimming pool, I don't feel the pressure of the water around
5: my legs. But if I put my wellies on and stand in a deep puddle, I do feel the
6: pressure of the water on my lower legs. Why is this? Forum user Bored Chemist thinks that it's likely to be the wellies, causing uneven pressure that is noticed by us. Pressure from fluids is the product of three combining effects, the acceleration due to gravity, the depth of the fluid layer, and the fluid density. Professor Colum Caulfield from the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics at Cambridge University agrees. It turns out we're all under pressure all the time, There's 100 kilometres of the Earth's atmosphere pressing down on us.
13: Think of a hat, with a square rigid brim of 10 centimetres by 10 centimetres. When we do the calculations, we find roughly 100 kilograms of atmosphere is pressing down on that hat. It sounds like a lot, but we are used to it, and so we don't typically notice. What we are actually strongly sensitive to are changes in pressure. Our ears can pop when we go up a hill, and we can experience discomfort as a plane lands and pressure equalises.
6: To answer our question from Daniel, there are three key points we must keep in mind.
13: Firstly, water is much denser than air, so pressure changes more rapidly with depth. Just 10 meters depth of water exerts a pressure roughly equivalent to the entire atmosphere.
6: That explains why submarines need to be sturdily built.
13: Secondly, when you wear Wellington boots, they hopefully keep you dry, and so there is always a layer of air around your legs and feet. Anywhere that there is air in contact with skin, the skin will be feeling atmospheric pressure. Finally, Wellington boots are flexible and so can be affected and bend due to differences of pressure on the inside and outside. So, with bare legs in water, the water pressure is felt uniformly around the skin. The pressure variation is down the leg and is gradual, and so you don't notice anything except perhaps where your legs break the surface. Now consider the way that pressure changes around the boot. Over the depth of the puddle, it changes much more rapidly in the water outside than the air inside. If the puddle is deep enough, eventually the pressure difference will be big enough to cause the boot to buckle, and the rigidity of the boot will shift the forces around, squeezing your legs and toes in certain places. It is this contrast in where the boot touches and where it doesn't that we notice.
6: So there you have it. As for what we can do about it... Maybe try wearing chunky socks next time to keep the wellies from buckling inwards. In the next question of the week, when it's all over and the smoke clears, we hope to be left with the answer to this question from Bethany.
0: My colleagues and I have had a rather heated debate in the office recently, sparked by one of them saying that secondhand smoke is more likely to give you cancer than actually smoking a cigarette. I was shocked when I heard this and struggled to believe it. What do you guys reckon? Is she right? Well, they say there's no smoke without fire. So is this a myth or is there a spark of truth to it? Send us your thoughts to chris at scientist.com or you can join in the debate on the forum. That's nakedscientist.com slash forum.
2: And that's all we have time for this week. Thank you to Katie for putting the programme together and do be sure to join us next week for a Q&A show. We've got four brilliant minds who will be coming in to answer the questions that you've been sending in. Speaking of which, if there's something you'd like to ask, why not send it to us now? It's chris at scientist.com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and it's supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye.